As Dodd said in his sermon on Wednesday, fasting is a discipline aimed at maturation, at becoming more mature, uh, more like Christ. And it's an opportunity not only to go without, but also to go without for the purpose of making sure that others go with, of lifting the burdens off of the shoulders of others. If we let it, fasting can be a wonderfully communal discipline, unifying and edifying to the whole body as we learn deeper and deeper ways to serve one another, to lift one another's burdens with the things that we forego. And quite importantly, fasting is an opportunity to draw closer to God, an opportunity through your hunger for whatever it is that you're fasting from to be pointed back to God, remembering that he's the only one who can truly satisfy your hunger and your thirst. Oftentimes, fasting involves making room for prayer for a particular purpose, and I wanted to share with you guys what my particular prayer that I will be praying, that I have been praying, that I'll be praying for Lent for myself and for our church. My prayer is that God might teach me to slow down, to listen, and to seek the face of Jesus in all things. It sounds kind of trite, but that is my prayer that he would do that for me, that he would teach us as a church to slow down, to listen, and to seek the face of Jesus in all things. If you're new here, you may not be aware of what the past few years have been like for us at Sojourn. They've been difficult, particularly for the leaders of Sojourn, and in ways that have extended, of course, also into the experience of many of our members. It's remarkable how the Lord has preserved our church and how he's cultivated faithfulness, love, unity, generosity, among other things, despite some of the failings of the leadership. And as we find ourselves seeking to pursue greater health, my temptation, um, our temptation as leaders, our temptation really as a church, is to strategize our way out of the stuckness that we have in some ways been experiencing. And listen, I love strategy and structure and process. I can talk about those things all day long. I think that my love for those things is God-given because strategy and structure are important. However, there is one place that life and renewal can come from, and that's not our strategy. In ancient Israel, right when the people of God finished building the temple, King Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple, and his prayer is quite interesting. The main thing he's praying for when the temple is built is that God would be merciful to their sins, that God would forgive them for their rebellion. He asks for God's presence and blessing over this new temple, and then he spends the bulk of his prayer in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, essentially praying several iterations of when your people turn from you in sin and you discipline them, when they repent and plead to you for mercy, please hear them, please forgive them, please restore them. That's what Solomon prays. And then... He's basically saying, we're going to sin, God. And we know that this temple is here because of that. Please hear us when we turn back to your presence, when we turn back to you. And then listen to what God says in response to King Solomon's prayer. God appears to Solomon in the night and says to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. So when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people... If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. 
Solomon prays the dedication of the temple that God would be ready to hear and forgive his people when they ask him, and God says right back to Solomon. Let me read 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, just that last verse once again. God says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So if you're Christian in here, and you have a short list of verses to memorize in scripture, this should be on that short list. The journey of faith is one of peaks and valleys, high points and low points. Sometimes we're walking closely with God, sometimes we're further away from that path. Sometimes our confidence is high and sometimes our confidence is low. Sometimes we're walking in holiness, sometimes we fall into sin. Sometimes we're bearing fruit and sometimes our branches are dried out and withered. And when we're dry, there's all kinds of things that we're tempted to reach for in order to quench our thirst. We reach for human relationship, we reach for money, we reach for pleasure, we reach for drink. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. When we are dry, Paul is talking about, when we are dry, the temptation is to reach for spirits. But Paul says those won't work, those will lead to death. Reach for the Holy Spirit, who can quench you. Similar to what God says to Solomon, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways and come to me, then I will hear them from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. This is my prayer during Lent for myself, for all of our leaders, and for our church. All of us together humbling ourselves, slowing down, and actually engaging in moments of confession with earnestness, focus, and faith opening up the scriptures and meditating on them afresh, seeking God's face, turning from sin and waiting, waiting for the healing that comes from God alone. I think that it's no accident that today on this first Sunday of Lent, we're in an incredible story of healing. We come to Jesus himself, the glorious son of God, the God-man who draws near to a man in need, a disabled man, an outsider, an inconvenience to everyone around him who Jesus draws near to and engages with love and compassion. It's a wonderful story that displays for us the plan of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the example of Jesus for an imperfect church that is seeking to grow more and more into the likeness and image of Christ. And so, Sojourn, as we come to this story together this morning, it's my prayer that together we will behold anew the beauty of Jesus and that we'll hear his invitation to follow him on the path of life. And that's what we're going to spend our time looking at together this morning. We're going to look at the plan of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the way of Jesus. And so let's jump in. As we've seen in some ways already, Mark, the author of this gospel, of course, is deliberate in his structure. He's writing history for us. He's telling us what happened, who Jesus was, and what he did. And he's, all, he's writing it deliberately. He's writing it theologically. Mark is presenting things for us in an order and structure that itself contributes and communicates the message that Mark is trying to get across. And in this portion of Mark's gospel, we, before we get to the details of the story itself, it's helpful to understand a bit more about what's going on in this larger section of the gospel of Mark that happens, really takes place over the course of Mark chapter 6 through Mark chapter 8. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the passage in which Mark, excuse me, in which Jesus feeds the 5,000. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus does some healings, and then we come to the unbelief of the Pharisees. Then he does some other miracles, and then the people confess that Jesus does all things well. It's a cycle. Jesus feeds the multitude, 
or confronted with the unbelief of the Pharisees, acts of healing then lead to a confession of who Jesus is. After this healing and their confession of Jesus at the end of our passage, there's another cycle in chapter 8. There's another feeding of the 4,000. We're confronted once again with the unbelief of the Pharisees. Then Jesus does more healing. And then Peter confesses faith in Jesus as the Christ in chapter 8 there. And there's striking similarities between the story that we're in here in Mark chapter 7 about the healing of a deaf man and the story of the healing of the blind man in Mark chapter 8 in that next cycle. In our passage, we're going to see that people bring the deaf and mute man to Jesus. He takes him aside privately, touches him, spits on him. His hearing and speech are restored, and then Jesus instructs the people to go tell no one. At the end, the people confess using really tones of Genesis that Jesus is doing the work of God. He does all things well. And then in the healing of the blind man in chapter 8, people again bring the blind man to Jesus. He takes him out of the village, touches him, spits on him. His sight is restored, and Jesus instructs him to go right home instead of going into the village and talk about him. Afterwards, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And so as you can see, the structure with which Mark presents these events from Jesus' ministry is quite deliberate. It helps us understand what the focus of this section is on. And the focus of this entire section is on who Jesus is. Each of these cycles builds to the point of confession, an understanding of who Jesus is, that he does all things well. As one commentator describes it, by skillful arrangement of the material, Mark indicates that it was necessary for the Lord to repeat the sequence of acts and teaching a second time before their significance dawned upon the disciples. The miraculous healing is a wonderful act of love and compassion to this man who is suffering. But we see that the healing is not the end goal. The healing is a means to an end. Jesus is demonstrating for the people who he is and through that, why he has really come. And so with an understanding of that in mind, let me read the passage for us once again. It's relatively short. Mark 7, beginning in verse 31. It says this, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the, Deca De the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, great job, Nate. That is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So right off the bat, right off the bat in light of the context that I gave you, there's a few details that probably stick out to us. And I want to point these out. We see in verse 31 that Jesus is in the region of the Decapolis. Decapolis is a word that means 10 cities, and it refers to a Gentile-dominated region by the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus has left the Jewish-dominated area, and he's now in a Gentile-dominated area. And this detail tells us a couple things. First, it tells us that Jesus is, continues to be on the move. Right? He's working miracles, he's performing mighty works, and this is understandably drawing crowds. And so Jesus has to keep moving because his purpose is not to be a miracle worker. If you remember, his purpose is to preach the kingdom of God and its arrival. And so Jesus keeps moving. He's not going to, be just, he's not going to stop and be mistaken for a miracle healer. Second thing that this Decapolis region points out is that this is 
a Gentile-dominated region, but it would nevertheless have been populated by some Jews as well as a result of the invasion and exile of the Jews from centuries before. So the significance of Jesus traveling around even in a Gentile-dominated region as opposed to merely areas that were primarily Jewish would not have been lost on Mark's readers. In Jesus, God is coming to gather his scattered people to himself. His people are scattered like sheep without a shepherd and he's gathering them back to himself. Another detail that sticks out to us towards the end in verse 36 is this, when Jesus charges them to tell no one about this healing miracle. So this is a detail. Uh, You may wonder why Jesus asks them not to talk about him, right? It's a a theme that goes throughout the book of Mark. Jesus is often telling people not to tell anyone about what they've seen. He doesn't always do this. Sometimes he does tell them to go and tell people, but often he tells them not to. And it's an interesting detail. Why does he do this? There's a lot of ink that has been spilled trying to answer this question. I think there's at least two reasons why Jesus does this. For one, in the immediate context, in the immediate context rather, he tells them not to tell anyone because his primary purpose would be hindered. Like I said just a moment ago, Jesus' primary purpose was to preach the kingdom of God, the good news of the king who has come to save his people, the good shepherd who has come to seek and to save the lost. But by this time, news of the works that he was doing was likely spreading pretty widely in this region. Back in verse 24 of chapter 7, we're told that Jesus entered a house and did not want anyone to know yet he could not be hidden. And here he tells them again, not to tell others. And why? Because being identified as a miracle worker would have called together crowds clamoring for his healing power, which would have been inconvenient at best and dangerous for him at worst. Also though, another reason is that there is a sense in which even as we see them beginning to understand about Jesus, we know, and Mark wants us to see, that they won't fully understand who Jesus is until after Jesus' death and resurrection. Right, so if they go out and preach about Jesus, they'll be preaching an incomplete message. In other words, knowledge of Jesus by his wonders alone is inadequate knowledge. Until they see his suffering on the cross for sin, they won't understand Jesus' true identity. And so he says, wait. Don't tell people what you've seen yet because you don't even understand what you're looking at. And then, of course, what happens, they clearly disregard his charge. They go around and proclaim all that Jesus has done. And this is kind of the point that Mark is getting at. Here, even as it's incomplete, we can see the smallest kernel of faith in Jesus. It's a clouded faith. It's an incomplete faith. The people can tell that something major is happening. They're just not sure what yet. Unlike the religious leaders, the Pharisees, The people are not put off by Jesus. They confess that something truly great is happening. He does all things well. But their disregard for Jesus' instruction testifies to their ongoing ignorance of who he is. They're still focused on themselves, on their needs, on their wants, and who they are excited Jesus is. As Mark's readers, however, we're starting to see details clearly pointing to the fact that Jesus is more than a miracle healer. He's the good shepherd come to his own to lead them not just into temporary fullness of health, but into the fullness of eternal life. That's who Jesus is. That's who he came to be for his people. So moving from, that's the plan of Jesus, right? Moving from the plan of Jesus onto the heart of Jesus, let's look a little bit more at how our story tells us about the character and heart of Jesus 
as he interacts with one of his own. Look with me at how he engages the man himself. Let's look just at verses 32 through 34. They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. I love how personal this scene is. For one, Jesus takes aside this man privately. Jesus, for Jesus' personal relationship with the sick was of paramount importance. Here was a man who had learned to be passive in society. He was deaf. He couldn't communicate. He had learned to just go with the flow. He had learned that he didn't have much agency. Here was a man who had learned one way of being about who he is and what he means to the people around him in probably very clear ways, given what we know about this culture. And Jesus removes him from the crowd to establish a personal relationship with him. Jesus isn't just some miracle worker with his eyes on everyone around waiting for them to give him the acclaim he deserves for being an awesome healer. He's a personal, loving, connected shepherd drawing near with his eyes on this man saying, I'm here for you. I was a football coach for a couple of years in high school not in high school. I was a high school football coach for a couple of years after high school. Um, and, uh, and I just remember when I was studying this passage, my mind went to a picture I had. I was one of the freshman football. I was like a, I, I moved the cones around. So I was not actually pleased. My football IQ, not very high. Um, I was there because I was a warm body and I could drive a school bus and I could move cones. But I just remember this scene from one of the freshman football games of one of our football players who you know, you know when a player on, a, on the field gets injured and the coach kind of walks out and it's the ceremonial, the coach will kind of walk out and call on the trainers and call on the, you know, whatever and get together with the team to address the problems and stuff. Um, not that that's a problem. The coach has all kinds of responsibilities. But I remember this one moment, there was this uh, quarterback, freshman quarterback who wasn't a very good quarterback. And so he had pl often played other utility roles. And one of them was he had, he had good hands. And so he played field goal or what do you call it? Kickoff return. Uh, and so he caught the, he, I remember he was looking up and right before he caught the football, he just got absolutely obliterated by one of the opposing players. Like worst hit I saw as a, as a football coach on this poor little freshman kid. And I remember his dad jumping. <laughs> I just, I remember his dad jumping out of the bleachers and running straight to him, getting down on his knees and just looking him in the eyes and grabbing him by the helmet saying, Tristan, are you okay? Jesus sees this sick man and he doesn't walk in with pomp and circumstance. He's not looking at everyone waiting to see, you know, man, how amazing he is. He runs straight to this man. He's the dad who jumps out of the bleachers, who breaks the rules to get right face to face and say, I'm here, I see you, are you okay? For Jesus' personal relationship with the sick is so important. And the second thing we see in this personal scene is that Jesus touches this man and he pulls him aside. He places his fingers in his ears, touching him saying, I see where you're hurt. I see where the problem is, touches his tongue. 
to make a brief comment about Jesus spitting as a way of healing. Some spittle would have been considered by the Jews at this time to have healing power, especially when applied to the area of sickness and when accompanied by some kind of formula or prayer. And there are some who have speculated that Jesus would have been adopting a familiar protocol in order to give this man a sense of what to expect. That is speculative, and there's probably something to that, but there's not much that could be, more that could be said about that, at least in part because it's clear that the healing is not done by the spit, but by Jesus' authoritative word of command. And so going back to Jesus' touch, this is clearly a picture of intimate compassion for this man. Touch is significant in Jesus' ministry. Remember, he goes near to the leper. We saw this a few weeks ago, and he touches the leper. And this, this man was deaf. He couldn't hear spoken words. And so touching him would have been an important way of expressing concern without speaking. As one commentator put it, physical contact is an expression of Jesus' compassion. Love seeks intimacy and the touch of Jesus is a tangible prelude of the fellowship that believers experience with Jesus through faith. So Jesus draws near to this man. He pulls him aside privately. He touches him. And then Jesus sighs. You see that? Verse 34. Just before Jesus speaks the healing word, refers to an involuntary expression in the face of something that is undesirable. And it conveys deep emotion. It's usually translated, this is the only time it's translated sighing in the New Testament. It's usually translated with the word groaning. And it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, same word to talk about the groans that accompany things like childbirth, sighing in childbirth, mortal conflict, slavery, great personal suffering, the story of Job. The Apostle Paul uses this word later in the New Testament to talk about the groaning of creation for renewal and our groaning inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption of sons. So here Jesus sees the suffering of this man and it says that he sighs, which is an expression of deep emotion. The deep compassion he feels when confronted with sickness and suffering. It's a deep sign of empathy of understanding, of feeling the pain that this man feels with him. And then finally, Jesus speaks. Ephatha, be opened, that is. So you remember Mark was a disciple of the apostle Peter. Mark wouldn't have been an eyewitness of these things, but he was a follower of Peter, a disciple of Peter, and Peter would have recounted things to Mark likely in what would have been the contents for this gospel. And as Peter told Mark the story of this healing, the word of command was memorable enough that Mark includes the original word, which was likely Aramaic, along with its translation in Greek for his Greek readers. Ephatha. The overtones of everything that's going on thus far in Jesus' ministry, together with what happens just afterwards, points to the fact that just as Jesus speaks this word to the man's ears and his mouth, he's also speaking this word, be opened to the whole man. And the man is fully restored. His ears are opened, his tongue is released, and he begins to speak plainly. The loosing of the tongue here literally translates as the chain of his tongue was broken. The chain of his tongue was broken. And so in this healing, there is a tone of liberation, of freedom, of chains being released, a man being walked from slavery into freedom. Here's a man who, like I said, has no doubt learned to be passive in society, unable to communicate, unable to hear what's going on. He would very much have been closed off in his own internal world 
And Jesus says to this man who has probably been closed off for his whole life, be opened. And he is. Be opened. Be free. So do we see what's happening here? When the crowds bring this disabled man to Jesus, they're expecting to see a mighty work for a miracle healer. Right? They bring this outsider, this man who would have been seen as an inconvenience or a problem to be solved. And to be sure, Jesus sees a problem, but he engages by pulling him aside, touching him, looking at him, saying, I see you, and I'm here to heal you. Jesus doesn't minister from a safe distance. He could have. Right? He had the, the power of the almighty God. There's a couple of times where he does heal someone from afar. But here he demonstrates his power by going, going right to the one in need, by running onto that football field and engaging with intimate compassion. One of the things throughout the ages that has marked the church is an unusual hospitality to outsiders. In the days of the early church, this is actually one of the things that led to some key persecution of the Christian church. In the earliest days of Christianity, Christians were kind of persecuted in different areas, mostly to appease, at least in part, to appease some of the agreements that the local Roman rulers had with the Jewish authorities. But eventually, there turned to be widespread persecution across the Roman Empire, and it was because Christians were breaking the status quo. Roman society was hierarchical. Right? There was a big deal between being a citizen and being a non-citizen, between, between being an insider and an outsider, between people in the city of the ruling class and between people in the country. There's this big division in society. And when the early Christian bishops declared themselves to be lovers of the poor, the church was essentially offering a new model of society. And Roman rulers found themselves increasingly watching the masses turn to a very different type of social makeup a different type of social arrangement. Christians were breaking the rules because they were coming not based on a cultural doctrine of division between upper and lower classes, but they were bringing a doctrine of common humanity. As a result, the Christian message was beginning to influence the masses. Societal upheaval, upheaval was inevitable as the church began to follow in the footsteps of Jesus who ran to the outsider. Which begs the question for us today, who are the so-called outsiders among us and around us in society today? Who has learned to be passive in our society and even in our churches? Think about our culture's values, wealth, power, prestige, Instagrammable vacations, romantic fulfillment, youth, vibrant health. How is the gospel good news to people who have those things? And how is the gospel good news to people who don't have those things? Think about the opportunity that the church has as followers of Jesus to lift up those who have been told, whether explicitly or implicitly, you're an outsider here. You don't belong. The disabled person, the addict, the unmarried man, the childless woman, the unemployed father, the LGBT person, the poor, the sick, the anxious, the one who doesn't work in oil and gas, the list goes on. How might we go to anyone our culture doesn't know what to do with and say, I see you, I love you, you are welcome in my life. Let me bring you to Jesus who has welcomed me. You see, in a real sense, every one of us in here feels like an outsider. 
even those who you look at and you might think, that person is definitely an insider here, feels like an outsider in this world. One of the effects of sin and living in a world that is marred by sin is division and isolation. A fundamental need that we have as human beings is fellowship, connection with others, with the connection of first importance being the one that we have with God who created us for fellowship with him. And when sin entered the world, this connection with God fell apart and with it, so too did our connections with one another as human beings. And ever since, even to the present day, we have been seeking as people, we have been seeking after connection and fellowship and always coming up short. Always coming up disappointed, disillusioned, let down. Remember what happened at the fall, Adam and Eve sinned. And the first thing that happened, remember what happened right after they sinned, they looked down and they noticed they were naked. Immediately upon the first sin, they, the, the Latin, there's a Latin term that was used through, throughout the centuries of church history called uh, incurvatus in se, that being locked into our own selves. Ever since the fall, all humanity has been locked into ourselves in a real and spiritual way, locked into self, uh, self-focus, self-love, self-loathing, which is a perverted type of self-love. And from this place, we look around at others, trying to get them to meet our needs. And time and again, they fail us because just like us, they're doing the same thing, looking at their own needs. This is what sin does. It chains us. It closes us off to seeing everything in the world through the lens of our own selves, our own kingdoms, our own wants and needs. And so when Jesus comes to this blind man and says, Ephatha, that is be opened and the chains fall away. This man begins engaging with society once again. It's certainly a story, a beautiful story of full restoration for this disabled man, but it's clear that there is more going on than simply a deaf and mute man regaining his hearing and speech. The text itself invites us to see that there's more going on. We're told that this man is deaf and his speech is impaired and that when Jesus heals him, he opens his ears and his mouth. This is not the first time in the Bible that we've heard of ears being opened and mouths being, uh, tongues being loosed. In fact, the word used to describe the speech defect there in verse 32 is an extremely rare word in the original language that occurs in two places in the Greek Bible, here in the New Testament and then one other place in the Old Testament. Let me read the verse that that happens in. This is Isaiah chapter 35, verses five and six. It says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute, same word, sing for joy. When Isaiah, the prophet, writes those words, things aren't looking great for God's people. Generations of rebellion have caught up with them. Babylon is at their doorstep. They're about to get invaded, lose the battle, and then be scattered in exile. And in the middle of all of these warnings from the prophet Isaiah, God gives his people this wonderful promise. One day things will turn around. Things are about to get really bad. The prophet Isaiah is telling Israel, things are about to get really bad. Babylon's coming and they're going to win. But it won't last forever. The wilderness and dry land shall be glad. God will once again restore his people. And then Isaiah essentially says, here's how you'll know what you're looking for. Here's how you'll know that that's happening. He says, the eyes of the blind shall be open. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That is the passage that Mark has in view here. Furthermore, the the term that 
is used in Isaiah is Lebanon. The region of Tyre and Sidon that is there in verse 31 is literally the same place. Jesus is coming from the wilderness to heal this deaf and mute man. Jesus' healing of this particular man in this particular region is the first fruit of the fulfillment of the promise from Isaiah. Here is Jesus with a man who gets healed. Isaiah had promised that the coming day of restoration of Israel would be accompanied by the ears of the deaf being unstopped and the tongue of the mute singing for joy. Are you following me? God's judgment over his people doesn't last forever. Life will come from the desert. When Solomon prayed at that day of the newly built temple in Jerusalem, when, God's, when he prayed that when God's people turned back to him in repentance, God would hear and forgive God had responded to Solomon, if my people turn to me, seek my face and turn from their ways, I will hear, I will forgive, I will heal. And then here, remember how the gospel of Mark starts. God sends a messenger to lead people in repentance, John the Baptist. Jesus preaches his first sermon, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, the God-man in whom the presence of God fully dwelt, the temple on earth has people flocking to him and he sees them, he hears them, he speaks words of forgiveness, words of healing. Do you see that the end of the ages that Isaiah looked towards was, was here in the person and work of Jesus? A few verses before our passage in Mark chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus had said, hear me, all of you, and understand. But it's clear that they don't. They can't hear him. Just a few verses after our passage, in chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus speaks of the blindness and deafness of the 12, Jesus' 12 disciples, who continue to show that they don't understand who he is. Jesus says, having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear. So he says, hear me, all of you, and understand. And then he looks at his disciples, having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear. And right in the middle, there's a story of Jesus healing a deaf, a deaf and mute man who has his hearing restored by the healing touch of Jesus. Here's what's going on here. Jesus is looking at his disciples. And through his disciples, Jesus is looking at all of humanity, saying, this man is a picture of all of you. All of you are deaf. All of you are blind. You have eyes, but you can't see. You have ears, but you can't hear. In a real way, we are the deaf man. On account of sin, there is a stoppage in our ears and a chain around our tongues and our hearts that we are unable to resolve on our own. And into the middle of this plight comes Jesus, the great ear opener, the great chain breaker, drawing near to the outsider, saying, I'm here and I have power to heal groaning in compassion for this dear man. But even now, Jesus' disciples don't get it. The crowds don't get it. Because the ultimate saving work hasn't been completed yet. You see, the spiritual deafness that plagues all of humanity had not yet been dealt with. Indeed, it's the very spiritual deafness that Jesus came to resolve that is the very deafness that led people to nail Jesus to the cross and kill him. Jesus sighs, groaning when he comes across this man who is suffering on account of his deafness. And then on the cross, as Jesus groans in agony, experiencing the full weight of sin and the suffering and pain that sin causes. Do you remember Jesus' prayer? 
Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They're deaf, Father, and they can't hear. Their hearing needs to be fixed. They're blind, Father, they can't see. Their sight needs to be restored. This healing miracle of the deaf man gets to the very heart of the gospel. The people brought this deaf man, this outsider, this problem person to Jesus so that Jesus could fix it. And they didn't know that they themselves were the outsiders and that they were the reason that Jesus came to solve the problem that this man ultimately pointed to. And Jesus, just as he engaged quietly, lovingly, gently with this dear man, hanging on the cross when he could have rained down fire from heaven, engaged gently with all of humanity saying, Father, please forgive them for they know not what they do. So when Jesus comes to this deaf man, he has power to heal him. No one else can. And there's no indication the man is even expecting to be healed, but Jesus draws near, meets him where he is, and he heals him. When Jesus comes to you and to me, he has the power to heal our greatest need. No one else can. And there's no indication that we are even expecting to be healed or even need to be healed. But Jesus draws near nonetheless, meets us right where we are, and he heals us. He turns deaf people into hearing people. He turns blind people into seeing people. He turns mute people into speaking and worshiping people. He turns outsiders into insiders. This, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. And this brings us to some critical questions. The first question is this, are you ready to receive his healing? There's a miracle where Jesus approaches a group, a group, a group of um, invalids, a group of disabled people. Um, one of the translators, that's not a, please strike the word invalid from your mind. Uh, that was in one of the translations I read. There's another miracle when Jesus approaches these, this group of disabled people and he goes up to a man and he says, do you want to be healed? In this passage, as you can hear both the undertones and the overtones of this passage, Jesus is loudly proclaiming to you and to me, do you want to be healed? Are you ready to be healed? I'm right here. You see, the, the journey of faith is an arduous journey. Jesus doesn't promise. There's many stories. As, for as many stories as, of healing as there are in the New Testament, there's many people in the New Testament who never get healed by Jesus. The journey of faith, there's no promises that the journey of faith is going to be better than your life was, externally speaking, before you came to Jesus. There's no such promise. The journey of real faith, of true faith, of following in the footsteps of Jesus is, in many ways, the journey of suffering but it is a suffering unto life. And the only way often that we even become ready to enter into that kind of journey is when we become, as Eugene Peterson once said, so fed up with the way of things, so fed up with our own efforts failing time and time again, that we finally release it, let go of it and say, Jesus, I need you. This question of, are you ready to receive his healing isn't just for those outside the church. The church, it's, it's, this is a question for us, Sojourn. Do we want to continue to be healed? The church is not for people who are well, but for people who are sick. There's no indication that healing is a one and done reality. There's an ongoing need for renewal 
an ongoing groaning that is unfolds for us over the course of the pages of the New Testament, groaning for, for full and final renewal that we continue to walk in even as Christians. An ongoing ministry of Jesus to us. And I think that's why Jesus invites us to follow him. He doesn't just heal and then disappear. He calls us to follow him along the life of faith. A second question is this. Are you ready, are we ready, Sojourn, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus with all of our lives? Healthy discipleship. A healthy understanding of discipleship is following Jesus in everything that we do. And we are experts at following Jesus in some things. The things that are expedient, the things that are convenient, we're really good at doing those things. The question is, are we ready to follow Jesus in everything that we do? The reason Jesus heals our deafness, blindness, and speech is for us to then turn and learn how to use them. Jesus invites us to follow him. Disciples in the ancient world would, that word comes from following a rabbi, a teacher, right? And that person, when, they, when called into discipleship, would leave everything they were doing before and just follow along in the footsteps of their teacher. Unfortunately, and, and, and the process of discipleship is a process of growth that takes all of our lives. And unfortunately, there's a gap in too many of our lives as Christians. We're in an age of ideas, we love having good ideas. We love to think that right action necessarily follows right thinking. And so we major on really wonderful and good and true doctrines and say, if all we do is talk about the good doctrines that we hold, then we're right where we need to be. But the problem that so often bears in our lives is that good, good ideas don't necessarily turn into good actions. There's a, 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 a teacher and writer named Dallas Willard who wrote a lot about true spirituality and discipleship, and he wrote this about um, discipleship. He said, the general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time, not to commit ourselves to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. We intend what is right but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. I'm going to read that quote one more time. Dallas Willard said this in the spirit of the disciplines. The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time, not to commit ourselves to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. So picture this. If I were to pull up a picture of an Olympic athlete, a triathlete, who is healthy, they eat leafy greens and drink the dew off of flowers, they've added 20 years to their life in how healthy they are, their body is a perfect specimen of human health and vitality. And I would say, is that a good thing to pursue? All of us, I think, would say, yes, absolutely. But can we do it? No. Willard says, are people willing to live the whole of our lives in the way that Jesus lives? Because people are all about how awesome Jesus is, usually. Some people aren't, but usually within Christian circles, one of the definitions of being in a Christian circle is thinking that Jesus is awesome. 
And so we like to think and talk about how wonderful Jesus is and the model that he demonstrates for us. And the question is, are we willing to live the way that Jesus lives? All too often, we like to content ourselves with the solace of belief without the commitment of true full life discipleship. This is so often what categorizes contemporary Christianity in the world that's all about ideas. And I'm grateful, Sojourn, that we have not been swept away by such a strict dichotomy, but that is the air that we breathe and I want you to be aware of it. We are surrounded by people, even in the American Christian world, who are content to live with the solace of believing the right things without the commitment of true all of life discipleship. And this is a huge opportunity for renewal. This is a huge opportunity for a revival in the Christian life in America. People who would come around one another in community and be drawn out of ourselves to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus in the context of everyday life. Leaning into God by his power to empower us to do that. It's a huge opportunity for renewal. And it usually starts with the church as Jesus leads us in true discipleship into community with people who pull us out of ourselves and face to face with needs outside of ourselves where we are forced to ask God for help. To ask the question this way, just to give one example that I think the passage makes it very clear that we get to ask, what is your approach to people with disability? What is your approach to people with disability? I was listening to a podcast last week that my wife shared with me with a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. It's a wonderful story. A wonderful woman of faith, she's 72 years old, who was born healthy, active, wonderful, and then she dove in to do some impressive swim and hit a rock and became a quadriplegic instantly. I can't remember exactly how old she was when that happened. 17? She's 72 now. She's been a quadriplegic since she was 17. She's battled cancer twice. She deals with chronic pain. And there's things that she has been able to teach us about life with Christ, life with God, that she would not have been able to teach without having had her experience. She said on this podcast, she said, there are things that you would wish would go differently, but no good thing will God withhold, we're told. And that truth is so much deeper than we know. The good in God's eyes is very different from the good in our eyes. So how do we see people with disability in our lives? Sojourn, consider how the Bible sees people with disability. She goes on to explain, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 22 says, those who seem to be weaker are indispensable in the church. Those who seem to be weaker, to our eyes, they look weaker are indispensable to the church. Indispensable because sometimes they call brothers and sisters in the church to sacrifice. It's going to be a little bit inconvenient. It's going to be a little bit hard. She tells you, this is, I'm kind of quoting bits and pieces of what she said. She said, dealing with a special needs mother whose child with autism melts down in Sunday school is going to be a hard situation. But Jesus says, do this. These are the people I hung out with when I walked the earth. In nearly every occasion, Jesus is hanging out with those in need, someone with a disabling condition, blind, deaf, lame, paralyzed. He is constantly befriending people with disabilities. Shouldn't that at least provide a model for us about what life looks like in Christ? Not just meeting people with disabilities, not just including people with disabilities in the room with us, but actually listening, giving them seats at our tables. 
People with disability can teach so much about sacrifice, care, hope, giving, and service. Providing a bit of respite for a mom of a child with spina bifida might look like training a few people to give her some, just give her a couple of hours away on a Saturday morning to get her nails done. But this starts, this kind of life, this kind of approach to being inconvenienced for the sake of others starts with fixing our minds on a picture of how Jesus loved people. Is getting in the middle of it with the people around us who might be inconvenient to our way of doing things? Is getting in the middle of it sighing with compassion and expectantly waiting for healing and renewal with hope? Does that describe our engagement with the people around us? Because this kind of engagement with the needs of others is where we truly experience the power of God. Usually, when we are called into a life of service, we come face to face with the fact that we don't want to do what that requires. When someone inconvenient enters your life and their life is different from yours, their interests are different from yours, their needs are different from yours, they want to talk about different things than you, usually we are brought to a place where we realize, I don't want to do that. And that is precisely the place where God meets us. When we come face to face with the fact that, man, I don't, I don't want to forgive this person for hurting me this way. I don't want to go to the movie with this guy again. I don't want to lose my Saturday morning because I have other things to do. I don't want to do that. Jesus, help me love that person. You know, that's a prayer that Jesus delights to answer. That is where we will see and experience the power and endurance and really empowerment of God to live lives of love and sacrifice like Jesus invites us to. So what would it look like to slow down and minister to one another? Our lives are so fast. What if we allowed the way loving people with disability affects our lives to shape the way we engage with everyone around us who are spiritually disabled without even knowing it? Who are the other outsiders in our midst, in our church, in our neighborhood, in our workplaces, in our families who force us to slow down, who force us to do things that we're not familiar with doing or we might not even like doing? Who are those people in our lives? Is it people who are unmarried? Is it people who are disabled? Is it LGBTQ people? Is it non-white people? Is it lower educated people? Is it, is it higher educated people? Who is it in your life who would be an outsider in your circles? Who we could look at the example of Jesus. Consider the example of a father who runs out of the bleachers to look in the face of a person in need. Sojourn, we can do this. We are a welcoming community, a supportive community, a loving community. God has opened up his treasures in Jesus Christ to the undeserving, the stragglers, the exhausted, the disabled. And that describes each and every one of us. And do you know how we do this? We do this by fixing our eyes on Jesus and remember how he deals with us first. All of us are spiritual beggars. All of us are people with disabilities who Jesus draws near and touches with his healing hand. And as we fix our eyes on this Jesus who deals with us gently from there, we watch as that shapes our engagement with the world around and we will fail, but God is with us and he's ready for us to run back to him because that's where he will hear us. He will forgive us and he will heal us. Let me close with Johnny Erickson Tara's last words on this podcast. The podcast host asked, what's the last thing, like the main thing, Johnny, that you would want people to know about Jesus? And she says this, Tender, 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 tender. 
far more tender than we realize. When we are in our worst moments, our most ugly moments, spiteful, resentful, angry, holding grudges, rebellious, stiff-necked, angry, sullen, feeling like I might as well chuck it all. I mean, God must think I'm horrible. God is so tender. Jesus is so tender that he's right there in that horrid moment with us, putting his arms around us and whispering to us, you can do this. Here, let me help you up out of this. I can make it better for you. That's how tender Jesus is. He's not the Jesus who stands at an arm's length distance with his hands folded, tapping his foot. Come on, come on, get it together. I died for you, so you'd better get it together, girl. Come on. That's not Jesus. He is so tender and with us, God with us, not only in our good times, but at the worst of times, so tender, I think it would be. That was the word that Johnny, this woman with disability, wants us to know about Jesus. And so sojourn. This is what she's learned over her life of disability. This is what Jesus shows us in his engagement with this deaf and mute man. Fix your eyes on that Jesus, the real Jesus, the tender and loving Jesus. And as you receive his love, watch as he loves you and through you begins to love others with a love that can't come from you, but must come from him. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this encounter with you through your word. Thank you for teaching us about your heart in this passage. Thank you for demonstrating for us what it looks like to love people well. Lord, we come before you and we confess that we have not loved people as we ought. And we are so grateful that you are not standing in heaven with your arms crossed, tapping your foot at us, waiting for us to get it right. You're simply grabbing us by the head, looking us in the eyes and saying, I'm here to heal, just receive it. So Lord, I pray that you would remind us in this room, those of us who are Christians, of our first love. Remind us of your love for us. For those of us who aren't Christian in this room, Lord, I pray that you would introduce yourself as the one who loves with tender care. And I pray that that tenderness would inform our life together with one another and with a watching world, and that we become a church that, where our eyes are focused on the things that you're focused on, Jesus, not the things of wealth and power and stature and status and fun and all those things that the world idolizes, but our eyes are, are for the weak, for the outsider, the one in need, because that is where we will find true life, that is where, where we will experience your power, and that is where we will be reminded of the way that you love us. So please make us a church that has your eyes for the world around us, Please make us brothers and sisters, a family just characterized by love and tenderness and beauty in relationship with one another, where all of us have equal part, equal seats at the table. We love you. We need you. Please help us in Christ's name. Amen.